You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So now I want to say something about Free Tuesdays. It starts a new format in August. You've been hearing a little bit about that. Um, I want to talk specifically about the 12-step group I'll be facilitating after the August kickoff. In in August, we're going to have a a worship service the first Tuesday of the month, and then every Tuesday after that, everybody will be together, and we're just going to walk through all 12 steps over over five weeks um, so that you, if you don't really understand the 12-step journey, that's a great crash course for you. Then starting in September, um, we'll have several groups, codependent, uh, chemically dependent, porn, and then I'm starting a group coming that comes out of conversations I've had with folks in the last couple of years about faith itself, about the fragility of it and the pain of um, an assault on a person's faith. Some of us have been exposed to a, a, a toxic church culture. I hope that happened before you got to Mosaic. Um, to abuses of power in the church and to bad theology that sent us down devastating paths. And for some of us, just being out of church for an extended time during the pandemic, that was kind of an assault on our, on our beliefs and it made us rethink our values, what matters in worship. Do I really care about things I grew up with, like, I don't know, robes or liturgy or, or even the creeds? What exactly do I care about and what does Jesus care about? Jeff Van Vonderen says this, that, that as painful as a, a traumatic event or a, or a liminal experience like the pandemic can be, he writes this, we also know how terrifying it can be when we begin to see that our spiritual lives may need to be torn down and rebuilt on healthier foundations. We understand the desperate desire to solve the problem by adding a fresh coat of paint or or doing a minor remodel, maybe even adding a room, but please God, let it be something less drastic than tearing down and rebuilding. Unfortunately, this is still Jeff, if the problem is with our spiritual foundations, then anything less than demolition and rebuilding would probably be a waste of time. In our spiritual lives, there is a time to tear down and a time to build up. And he's right about that. That comes straight out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Jesus said the same thing. He talked about, um, he talked about how God prunes the ones he loves, how he clips the branches so the tree can bear more fruit. Deconstruction can be an important part of pruning for greater spiritual fruitfulness, but only only if deconstruction is followed by reconstruction. (laughs) I heard somebody say recently that deconstruction without reconstruction is really just destruction. (laughs) We become hypercritical of things and, and, and tear them down without any clear vision of what God is trying to build. Deconstruction by itself won't get us where we need to go. In other words, after every winter, you need a spring. Otherwise, it just keeps getting colder. So this... This, this healing from trauma, asking honest questions of God about the state of our spiritual lives, dealing with wounds to our faith, tearing down and rebuilding. That's very much the spirit of the 12-step group I'll be facilitating starting in, on Tuesdays in September. 
And using the 12 steps, the Holy Spirit, and the support of a group, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about our history with toxic spirituality. We'll talk about our own relationship with God and about the nature of our faith and what hasn't worked for us. And we're gonna use the steps to make sure we make this all very personal. <laughs> that we go deeper than head level conversation. I, it's important for me to say that this is not a group for people who want to talk theology in the third person or even talk in general about spiritual, toxic spirituality or about the church, you know, the, 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 everything you hate about the church in the third person. It's not about that. This group is for those who want to make their own journey out of trauma and into grace. So I hope you'll think about joining us in August for the whole the, uh, the overview, the crash, crash course, and then in uh, September for the 12-step recovery group from spiritual trauma. And that is amazing to me. This leads us directly into our um, scene, the scene we find in Mark 11, where we find a group of religiously educated men who cannot make sense of what Jesus is doing. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I have a lot of sympathy for these guys. I need to say this right up front. These are not armchair quarterbacks. These are men who have given their lives to the study of God, who are religiously correct, who follow the rules, who care about the temple, who have strong convictions about what God is doing in the world. They've, they've worked hard to get to the places of authority that they occupy. So I can understand how they would be protective of that. I would be too, and, and, and leery of anyone who threatens it. And then into their world, this man walks in who, who, whose very life questions theirs. He challenges their practice of faith and seems unmoved by their chain of command. Jesus himself actually becomes a liminal moment for them. So I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 27. Mark eleven twenty seven. they arrived again, and they is the Jesus and the folks who were following him. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. They had the whole crew there. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. <laughs> this, is, this is a crack up if you know the stuff. It's really funny. <laughs> so they discussed it among themselves and they said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask them, why didn't you believe him? <laughs> but if we say of human origin, well, they feared the people for everybody held that John really was a prophet. <laughs> so they answered Jesus, we don't know. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> and Jesus said, well then, I don't need to answer your question either. <laughs> I'm not gonna tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. <laughs> so this scene leads us into a section of Mark that focuses on people who question Jesus. And, and it runs all the way, the thread kind of runs all the way almost through the rest of chapter 12. And so we're gonna hear four questions that people ask Jesus, and we'll talk about what these questions teach us about ourselves, about Jesus, and about the kingdom of God. 
And the question beneath all these scenes, and the question I want you to write, either at the top of your, that page in your Bible or on your journal if you're taking notes in a journal, the question I want you to write is, is it okay to question Jesus? Is it okay to question Jesus? I want you to wrestle with that question this week. And the short answer, I'll go ahead and tell you, is yes. But the problem is that Jesus rarely answers the question you ask him. By what authority these skeptical leaders ask Jesus at the synagogue? What are you doing these miracles for? What, how, how, how are you teaching these lessons? In other words, who do you think you are? And Jesus answers them by asking a question. I'll tell you by whose authority, but first let me ask you something. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? It's one of those puzzles only an expert can answer. A challenge and a lesson dressed up as a question. It called them out as unfaithful, no matter which answer they gave. If, if John's authority was from heaven, they were exposed as rebellious because they didn't believe John. If they said his authority was from earth, they risked the, the anger of the crowds who followed them. Even though they were scholars, they, they could not tease out an answer that wouldn't come back to bite them. Well, Jesus said, well, then I don't have to answer your question either, which is brilliant. If you're going to ask Jesus questions, you need to do your own homework. Basically, we need to up our game. Another time, the religious leaders came to Jesus and they asked him, um, after his, they noticed his disciples weren't washing their hands before meals, which was a big deal in their day. Of course, we wash our fingernail, our fingerprints off our hands now, but, but, but what we're talking about with them is something much more sacramental. And why can't Jesus' followers play by the traditional rules? And again, Jesus answered by asking questions. Why, he said, let me ask you a question. Why don't you take better care of your parents? <laughs> why don't you follow the Jewish rules of compassion and honor? Jesus asked a lot of questions. 307, to be exact. That's how many questions Jesus asked. 307. And he answered very few of their questions. And I think that Mark chapter, chapter 12 probably has the majority of the questions that Jesus was asked or, or that Jesus answered. I don't think Jesus used questions, though, to, to avoid hard answers. That wouldn't have been in his character. I don't think he was trying to outsmart anybody. I actually think Jesus was using questions to uncover the deeper issues, the agendas people tend to carry into their relationship with God and religion. And I think Jesus understood that a great question almost acts like a trowel. It digs into the soil of a person's spirit and, 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 and churns up latent feelings and beliefs we didn't even know were there. A great question can stop us in our tracks and, and change our perspective. Good answers fix problems in the short term. Good questions have the power to create lasting change, but great questions, great questions can change a worldview. So here in Mark 11 and 12, we're invited into Jesus' relationship with a questioning world, and we discover that Jesus is okay with our questions as long as we're okay with his. <laughs> so let's look at another scene in chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. There's a parable between the passage we just read and the passage we're about to read, and basically the parable is Jesus saying, you know what, you shoot down every prophet and Messiah who comes your way. You tend to shoot them all down. 
So we're playing on our terms now. And that irritated the heck out of them. Later they sent some of the Pharisees, this is Mark 12, 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Why did they send people to him? To catch him in his words. So now they've just, now they've gone from suspicion to manipulation. They came to him, verse 14, and said, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. This is not, you know, this is that kind of thing where you're trying to get your kid to take out the trash and you say, ah, you're the fastest runner in the world. I bet you can't get this done by the time I set the timer. <laughs> and I learned it from my brothers who got all their ketchup by doing that. Oh, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. <laughs> and then Jesus said to them, well, then give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. What is striking in this scene is that they're more interested in stumping Jesus than knowing the truth. That's what happens when we come to Jesus bearing an agenda. And this teaches us something about our fallen tendencies. Too often, our questions have baggage attached. So let's talk about a thing we're all guilty of every once in a while, at least every once in a while, where, you, where you've got an outcome in your head, so you start your conversation with that outcome in mind. Let's just take a simple one. Say it's you telling your family you want a hamburger for dinner, and not just any hamburger. You want a hamburger from your grill at your house, handcrafted with all the right seasonings. That's what you want. But your people don't want that because as you're having this conversation, y'all are all at the lake and they don't want to cook at home. In fact, they don't want to cook, period. They want to go out to eat, but you're dug in. You want a hamburger from your grill so nothing else is going to work and a debate ensues. You're dug in. It's you against them. Any, anybody had, anybody's family had any, anybody? Just, just me. It's just me. Here's the thing. It's not actually the hamburger you even want. Because this conversation is happening on August 6th. And you know what happens on August 6th this year? Anybody know? On, on Saturday, August 6th, the number two Braves play the number one Mets twice in one day. And what you really want is not a hamburger from your grill. What you really want is to go home, sit in your chair with your remote in your hand, and watch the Braves kill the Mets twice. That, friends, is what we call an agenda. It's that thing you bring into a room that you know about, but the rest of everybody doesn't know about it. And usually the person with the agenda, or what I like to call the unspoken prayer request, has power in the conversation because everybody else is trying to figure out why you care so much about this thing you've never cared about before. 
And that's like a lot of the conversations we bring to God. And it's like a lot of the conversations Jesus had with religious and political leaders. They would bring in these questions or want to debate some obscure issue with him. But the question they asked wasn't what was deep in their hearts. What they wanted was something unspoken. They wanted validation or power or, or not to be challenged. They wanted academic debate, but not life transformation. And unlike most of us, Jesus was a master at those conversations. He could see right through to their hearts, and he'd unmask their unspoken agendas. They would expose their hearts, not to shame them, but to challenge them to break through their own false narratives. Oswald Chambers writes this, Our soul's personal history with God is often an account of the death of our heroes. Over and over again, God has to remove our friends and put himself in their place. And that's when we falter, fail, and become discouraged. And listen, sometimes those heroes and friends are people, but sometimes... Those heroes and friends, we make friends and even marry our ideas, our agendas. We make friends with institutions or with positions of power. We make friends with childhood dreams or that, that breed adult dysfunctions. We make friends with political and social agendas. And shaking ourselves loose from those heroes and friends is hard. It's hard. It takes work, and it's revealing. Chambers says, My character determines whether or not truth can even be revealed to me. And then Chambers says this. Listen to this. Until I am born again and really begin to see the kingdom of God, I only see from the perspective of my own biases. And you say, but I, I am born again. And I want to say to you, yeah, but there's unsaved parts of you. I know that that's true for you because it's true for me, and I'm not that different from you. You know, the unsaved parts of us that we hold out in the bargain to get close to God? I think of it like the Barney Fife finger, uh, trigger finger. You remember when, I've told you this lots of times, I can never stop talking about that because I love it. So when Barney Fife was, when the manicurist came to town, he came to Mayberry and, and, and nobody would talk to the manicurist. They, no man wanted to have his finger manicured in, uh, at the barber shop until Andy went in there and after Andy went in there, everybody else wanted to have their, their, uh, their uh, get, to get a manu manicure and then finally Barney said he would get a manicure but not his ring not his trigger finger. Don't touch my trigger finger. <laughs> and we got those, right? We got those trigger fingers. We don't want Jesus to talk to. I'm just preaching to myself here. You can listen in. When Jesus challenged people with questions, it was not a gotcha tactic. What Jesus was and is after is the death of our heroes and friends, those hidden and maybe not so hidden agendas and ideas that keep us from seeking the kingdom of God with our whole hearts. Look at another scene, Mark 12, 18. Then the Sadducees, 
who say there is no resurrection. You need to underline that, because that's kind of hilarious. They come to him to talk about resurrection, but they don't even believe in resurrection themselves. The Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The, the second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Doesn't that feel a little bit like that math word problem that you used to have to do? Some of you are dealing with mathematic trauma right now. I want to ask you, step back from that, okay? Jesus replied, are you not in error? Because you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. <laughs> when the dead rise, and this is the best part, <laughs> he first says, there is a resurrection. <laughs> when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. But now let's talk about the dead rising. This is verse 26. Jesus is brilliant. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God, I am, underline, circle, whatever, that, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Not I was, but I am. Which means that he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then this last sentence is the saddest sentence to me. You are badly mistaken. I don't think anybody wants Jesus saying that to them. To have worked so hard at their theology, to have gained such prominence in their world, and to have the Messiah, who they don't even recognize, say to them about the nature of life itself, you are badly mistaken. That's heartbreaking. That's my worst nightmare. I got to tell you, to find out after I've worked so hard at my faith, to hear God say of me, you are badly mistaken. Not about my little word games and arguments against what he wants of me, but about the things I have staked my whole worldview on. I get the angst and confusion of these guys. You are badly mistaken. That is a bold word for Jesus to give. And what if you really are badly mistaken? Do you change yourself or do you change your Messiah? This one line is an incredibly strong argument for a better prayer life, for more humility, for a better respect of the questioning side of your relationship with God. How are you processing your own questions? Does Jesus have your heart in that process? Even if it means admitting mistakes? So this is what our questions teach us about Jesus. Jesus wants your heart. You're not interested in your right answer. He wants your heart. He wants all the unsaved parts of you under his salvation. Look at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had give, given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? 
The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right. And saying that God is one and there's no other but him, to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's pulling straight out of Old Testament prophets there. And when Jesus saw he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So if you're badly mistaken, is my worst nightmare, you're not far from the kingdom of God, is my wildest fantasy. <laughs> oh, how I want to hear that from Jesus. Do you? Oh, how I hope I will hear it one day. Even if it means I have to put my heroes and friends to death, my agendas and idols, even if I have to put them completely to death, I want to hear, oh, how I hope I have faith enough to hear you're not far from the kingdom of God. That's my goal, my whole aim, to seek and see the kingdom of God. So what do our questions teach us about the kingdom of God? First of all, the kingdom doesn't have to defend itself. This is what Jesus modeled in his responses to the folks who challenged him with questions. It's what he modeled when he stood before Pilate in his last days when Pilate asked him, what is truth? And Jesus said, nothing. The kingdom doesn't have to defend itself. It does not have to explain itself to me in order for it to be true. This is good to know. It means I don't actually have to have all the answers or understand everything Jesus asks of me in order to believe and follow. What a relief. Second, the kingdom is transparently in love with God and people. <laughs> We're not the problem. We're the prize. Thanks be to God. If we want to get close to the kingdom of God, then the, the goal is wholehearted love for God and people. And people which might sound exhausting or hard, depending on who your people are. But I'm reminded of something I found a couple of years ago. Uh, David White, he's a poet, was, he talked with a, a monk named David, uh, sorry, brother, um, David Stindelrast. And uh, White told brother David about his life and all his unfulfilled dreams as a poet. Can you imagine being a full-time poet? That's an act of faith right there and um, trying to hold it all together. And he asked Brother David, what's the cure for exhaustion? And Brother David said, the cure for exhaustion is not rest. The cure for exhaustion is wholeheartedness. Let me say that again. The cure for exhaustion is not rest. It's wholeheartedness. What exhausts us is not too much stuff, but too much stuff scattered in too many different and sometimes opposing directions. No wonder God tells his people, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Because he knows how, how we're designed. We are actually designed for full-on faith. Which means that the kingdom can be reached by wholehearted pursuit. We can get there from here. 
If we're willing to do the hard spiritual work, if we're willing to ask better questions or learn better questions to ask, if we get more honest with God and ourselves about the roots of our distrust and fear and anger, we can actually get there from here. So asking better questions will give us better answers. Look again at Matthew 12, verse 34. That very last line, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. That's also a sad line in the Bible. The section begins with people questioning Jesus, but with tons of mistrust and manipulation mixed into the conversation, and it ends here with no more questions. From then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Is that the best way to handle Jesus? Just don't ask him any more questions. Suck it up. Do the right thing, but stay clear of Jesus. Don't talk to him often. Definitely don't bring him your questions or doubts or worse, the things you outright don't understand or don't agree with. Is that the best way to handle Jesus? It brings us back to our opening question. So, is it okay to question Jesus? <laughs> the short answer is still yes. Asking questions is an important step in the process, but it is only part of the process. Remember, deconstruction without reconstruction is just destruction. So asking questions is only part of the process of tearing down and rebuilding a more solid and enduring faith. So yes, Jesus can handle our questions. I think he lives for them. I think Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, longs for real questions and real conversations much more than long lists of prayer requests. All he asks is that you enter into your questions with the right heart, the right motive. No secret agenda, no unspoken prayer request with Jesus. This is how we have to come to Jesus. We have to come transparently, questions and all. Because Jesus does not play games. Because we won't reach the kingdom if we start from our own agenda. Every agenda has to be cut loose. Every hero has to die if we're going to hear Jesus the way Jesus wants to be heard. Which is to say that if we begin with the premise that Jesus is a Democrat, or Jesus is a Republican, or that Jesus loves the Braves better than the Mets, do you hear me? <laughs> If we begin to, with the idea that, that I need Jesus to agree with me on this issue I've banked on, we will never get close to the kingdom. Jesus won't have it. He won't play those games with us. He will ask us to lay down every agenda, every preconception, every defense before he will enter into a, to an authentic conversation with us. We lay down not every question, not every doubt, but every agenda. So don't ask if you don't want to know. <laughs> because once you know, you're responsible for what you know. <laughs> I just spent a week with a three-year-old who's a master at not asking what she doesn't want to know the answer to. Just go get yourself another snack. See how far it goes for you. Just go get yourself. Just go do whatever you want until they tell you to stop. That's great for a three-year-old. 
it's not so good for someone with grown-up faith. Don't be afraid of asking, thinking Jesus won't respect your questions. Because listen to me, it isn't your doubts that keep you from hearing from Jesus. It's your certainties, your agendas, the rules you've already laid down that you want Jesus to abide by. And here's the good news. Are you ready? Jesus speaks with authority. This is the answer to the first people's question. Jesus speaks with authority given him by God. And God is good. And all the time. So we can trust him. That's the best gift of all. Jesus wants my heart, but I can trust the heart of Jesus. Stand with me. That's right, perfect. We made it through that. So what are the agendas I have embedded in my heart, embedded in my life, that keep me from hearing the voice of God? Here's a better way to ask that. What do I need more than I need Jesus? Huh. <laughs> what do I need more than I need Jesus? What does Jesus care about, and is it the same as what I care about? Am I really even willing to ask that question? Am I, am I even willing to hear the answer if I ask? Man, I really want you to just get on your knees this morning, this afternoon, this afternoon now. I just want you to get on your knees. So some of you just come up here and get on your knees so other people will come up here and get on their knees. I want you to get on your knees. I want you to get on your knees. <clears throat> because I think that asking hard questions requires a humble posture. So I want you to find that place inside that is humble, that says, okay, Jesus, all right, right here, right now, I am going to let you deal with my agendas, my unspoken prayer requests. And I don't even know what they are. It's like the writer of, the Psalms, of Psalm 19 said, we, who even knows what's hidden in their hearts? I don't even know half my unspoken agendas. I don't even know if I am starting from the wrong place on really important things. So Jesus, what my prayer is, this is my prayer for me, for us, for these people. Jesus, show me the hidden things I don't even know are there that are in my life, that are my responsibility. Show me, Jesus, where I am starting with the wrong answer in mind. Because I want to get to the kingdom of God. That's where I want to get to. I don't want to be badly mistaken. <laughs> I want to I seek and see the kingdom. God, show me, show me, show me. Show me. Give me better questions so I can find better answers. So I can be wholehearted and my response to you.
Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.